Amen, amen. You brought a Bible, say yes. And let me invite you to open it with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. If you're visiting, we're going verse by verse uh, through this Gospel, following the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today I want to talk to you on the subject, demanding discipleship. Demanding discipleship. Now, so far I've preached this twice in uh, two services. I could tell they didn't like it. So I'm going to try a third time and uh, hopefully to go better this go round. But here's the question for you. Uh, have you ever been invited to be a part of something, and then after you said yes, you found out what you said yes to? This happened to me before. I was invited to be on an organization on one occasion. Went to the first meeting, and all of a sudden found out I had to raise a bunch of money. I was like, what? I didn't realize I didn't sign up for this. What's well, interesting, whenever you see Jesus calling people to be his disciples out of the crowd, he gives full disclosure. No fine print. No bait-and-switch tactics. He wants to make it extremely clear exactly what he is calling you and I to do. It is demanding discipleship. Now, what we're going to read this morning, not a popular verse of Scripture. Uh, most people kind of skip over it, neglect it. And the reason they do is because it gives a different portrait of Jesus than what you and I are probably used to. You know, as a matter of fact, in our modern-day culture, most people kind of picture Jesus as uh, somewhat of a sissy. Are y'all all right with me saying that? So they've kind of pansified Jesus. Pansified, I just made that word up. And uh, you write that down. But anyway, they kind of made Jesus out to be a pansy. And as a result, they neglect passages of Scripture that may give you and I a different light of who Jesus is. Now, when I was studying this, I found that not only was I... Uh, thinking that some people have kind of sissified Jesus, but I also found a couple of quotes that I thought were very interesting. John MacArthur says this, These days, Jesus is often portrayed as a pacifist, a philanthropist, or a docile teacher. He strikes a plastic and sometimes pathetic pose in the minds of many. Some prefer the meek and mild Jesus who heals the sick, calms the fears, and speaks of peace and goodwill. And these things do represent a portion of the Messiah, but pra tragically... Uh, too many have never been exposed to the rest of him. And then listen to J.B. Phillips. He says, why mild when describing Jesus? Of all the epithets that could be applied to Christ, this seems one of the least appropriate. Jesus Christ might have been called meek in the sense of being selfless and humble and utterly devoted to what he considered right, whatever the personal cost, but mild, never. And you know, as we look at our text of Scripture this morning, you're going to find that Jesus Christ is actually calling people out of the crowds to be disciples, to be genuine followers of His. And what's also amazing about Jesus is that whenever I study the Bible, especially uh, the Gospels, I find Jesus Christ moving forward. And there are always these large crowds gathering around Him, but it's almost as if He says things to the crowds to get some people just to leave. And I'm like, why in the world would you do that, right? That's not a good church marketing plan. Are y'all listening? It's like, you want the church to grow, say some nice stuff. But Jesus, on one occasion, looked at the crowds and he's like, if y'all are going to come after me, you got to partake of my flesh and my blood. And then he turned, and people like jetted. They left him, and then he looked at his disciples and said, are you leaving too? To which one of them responded and said, how can we leave? You have the words of life. Now, consider that for a moment. There are large crowds following Jesus in Luke 14. And Jesus is about to say something that is more or less going to make some people go, what? That is the call? And I'm confident that it'll probably be the same response of many in here today. Luke 14, verse 25. Stand with me out of God's word. You've got it there in front of you. Say yes. And um, the large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, 
and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, the man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sits out and uh, to meet another king in battle, would he not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you uh, can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, take this part out, I like this. This is Jesus talking. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's bow together. Father, uh, thank you for your word this morning. Pray that you've been with the Holy Spirit and grant me uh, freedom to deliver the message the way you see fit. And God, place your hand upon all of those who are listening today and grant them the ability to understand the word, the call, Father, I pray that people would respond to your message. Uh, you alone uh, are glorified here today. Father, we pray against the enemy uh, who would seek to take up uh, people's attention, who would seek to come in and uh, consume the minds. Father, we pray against that and ask that the Holy Spirit would speak. And we'll give you glory. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. You can be seated. So Jesus is calling disciples. Jesus, by the way, this is awesome. He's still doing the same thing. So he is still calling people to be his disciples. And this morning, we're going to find a few uh, things about this discipleship that maybe you weren't aware of. I know the Lord has convicted me deeply over this passage of Scripture, and so I'm just going to kind of deliver it to you the way I received it from Him. So the first thing that I want you to see about a disciple is that a disciple willfully surrenders to the person of Jesus. A disciple willfully surrenders to the person of Jesus. Look in your Bible at verse 26. Uh, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, everybody look at me, all right? Look at me. This is wild. So you know we're going verse by verse. Y'all know this, right? You Concordians, y'all are aware we're going verse by verse. What's amazing to me is uh, next Sunday is Mother's Day. I am so glad I don't have to preach that verse next Sunday. Y'all all right? It's like, you want to follow Jesus? You got to hate your mama. Happy Mother's Day. Right? God bless you for coming. Now, whenever we look at this uh, passage of Scripture, the first thing that Jesus says, if you want to come after me, is the idea of getting in line behind him and actually following him. But we've got this uh, massive conflict in our own hearts and our minds, I'm sure you do, as you heard this text being read. You know, if we follow the life and ministry of Jesus, we know that Jesus was continually telling everybody to love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength. He even says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. Jesus encourages love. Matter of fact, John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus Christ and uh, wrote 1 John, he says it like this. If you say that you are walking in the light and yet you hate your brother, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. All right? So here we have Jesus on one hand saying, love God and love others. 
Here we have those who were closest to Jesus in his ministry writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, you need to love other people. And then we come to a text like this where Jesus says, hey, you going to follow me? Got to hate. So the question is, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Why would Jesus call you and I to hate our mama and our daddy, our brother, our sister, our wife, our children, our family? Yes, even our own lives. Why such a command? Why such a statement? Well, whenever we look at this idea of hatred, we've got to come to a couple of conclusions. These are things I'm jotting down in my notes. I'd encourage you to do the same thing. When Jesus speaks of hating in this text, what is he actually talking about? Well, one, he's describing an act of the will, an act of the will. In other words, this idea of hating means to choose, listen, choose one over the other. Same exact thing happened over in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. I remember preaching that book uh, at another church and came upon Malachi chapter 1, and it threw me off tremendously because of what God said. God said very plainly in Malachi chapter 1, he says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, when I read that to begin with, I'm like, what? The Lord said he hates somebody. What's up with that? Well, ultimately, it's because in Jewish idioms and Jewish literature, oftentimes when this comparison occurs, what is happening here is God is elevating the reality that he has chosen Jacob, his younger or the youngest son, over Esau, who was the oldest son. So it is a matter of choice. So if we take that concept and rush to the New Testament in Luke chapter 14, when the Lord says, you want to follow me, you've got to hate everybody and your own life, What is he saying? He is ultimately saying that you have to choose to place Jesus as first priority in your life. He must be paramount. It's an act of the will. He must be your absolute affection. Now, what's wild here is this means that as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, our vocabulary radically changes. In fact, as a follower of Jesus We no longer uh, sit around and ask questions like this as a disciple. We don't ask the question of, well, what does daddy want? What does mama want? What what do you reckon my brother wants? What what do you think my wife might want? What, what, What about my sister? What do I want? A disciple doesn't ask this. A disciple's primary question in life is, what does Jesus want? What does the Lord desire? Now, if that is not your primary question in life, when you make decisions, then you're giving evidence that you're not really following the Lord. You're not a genuine disciple, that he is not paramount in your life. You're not making a conscious choice to elevate Christ over all other relationships in your life. You are surrendering. Listen, as a disciple, you and I are called to surrender to the Lord Jesus above surrendering to any family member or any of our own personal desires. So he's elevating this idea of choice. But then it goes a step further. Something else I kind of wrote down in my notes here. Jesus is also elevating a comparison of loves. A comparison of loves. So what we will note here this morning is that if we look at a person's love for the Lord Jesus Christ, that is his adoration, his affection, uh, his aspiration for Christ, that love, are you listening, say yes? That love should be so great that when you compare that love with the love that you have for other things on the earth, this love for other things ought to look like hatred. 
Now, when I began to think about comparing, uh, I immediately came to my mind uh, this idea of these scales, these huge scales. In fact, I wanted you to know that this message is brought to you by Ace Hardware. Please visit your Ace Hardware store. But you can kind of take a look here. God bless you for that laugh. You can kind of take a look here at the scales. And in my mind, I began to kind of picture this. I'm like, all right. So on one side of the scale, what I really do is I have like love for me, love for everybody else. On the other side of the scale, I've got my love for the Lord. Now on my desk, and you know, this is where I'm studying. So on my desk, I've got a couple of pictures in the office. Uh, one, uh, pictures of my wife. I've got some love for her. Y'all all right with that? God bless you. And I also have some pictures of uh, my children. So all four of my kids, this was given to me for Father's Day. All right? Don't they know they should hate their daddy? That was funny, I thought. <laughs> but here's a picture of them. It literally is uh, all their feet. And on their feet, it says, we love daddy. Right? So here I've got this sitting in front of me. And here I have the text of scripture. Anybody comes after me, you got to hate his mom and his daddy, his wife, his children. Starts getting real. Y'all listening? So really the idea is if I take my love for my wife, my love for my children, and I begin to place them in the scale, and you can obviously tell the weight goes down rapidly. And then you begin to add all your other loves, all right? So in my pocket here, I've got a, a telephone, and on my phone, I've got my parents' speed dial. So I call my mama once a week. I'm a mama's boy. Y'all all right with that? I call her up and say, what should I preach Sunday? I'm just kidding. But anyway, so I, I do. I talk to her. have a little conversations. And uh, she never calls me. I call her. I hope you're watching this podcast, mother. <laughs> but it's pretty wild, right? So I call her. It's because I love her, right? And uh, love other people. And Bryant Winters just texted me. So I love you too, brother. And uh, so I've got this love. But if you piled it in here, how far down would it go? And then as I began to think about this, you know, we've got, and all of us, the majority of us men, we all carry wallets, right? So in our wallets, we got some uh, cash. Maybe we got some checks, some credit cards, some uh, debit cards. How much do we love what we own? And then, you know, I've got uh, in, in this uh, pocket here a set of keys. And, uh, you know, as you think about keys, keys give you kind of the freedom to go places, right? So I got a key to a truck. So I can just like, whenever I want to, I can just go crank it up. I can leave, go wherever I want to, right? So I, I love that. All right. So we can lay that down. Now here's the question. Once you begin to kind of pile all your love in here, and then sit back and say, okay, now let me try to take inventory and stock of my love for the Lord. How much do I love the Lord? And then if I were to place, if I could somehow make my love for the Lord weigh something and then drop it into that bucket, what would happen? Would that just go plummeting to the floor? And it is so obvious my love for the Lord is so great. Or would you find that it barely moves? And you know, in my own study, uh, I began to realize, thinking about this idea, how quickly, how easy it is for me to fall in love with something else besides the Lord. Jesus says, you're going to follow me. You've got to hate your mom and your daddy, your family, even your own life. And your love for the Lord should be so great that when you look at this kind of love, that looks like hatred, man. It's how great we should love the Lord. It's a comparison of loves. And those who love the Lord willfully surrender to the person of Jesus. Those are disciples. 
But those that do not, they're not disciples. Then there's a second reality in this text. It doesn't get any easier, but a disciple also openly follows the plan of Jesus. Openly follows the plan of Jesus. So look in verse 27, if you would, your Bible. Uh, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, as soon as the Lord Jesus Christ mentions a cross, it elevates a cruel death. And in this, I jot a couple things down that uh, I'd encourage you to jot down as well uh, as it describes disciples. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, what's he saying? Well, first he's saying disciples of Jesus are public with their faith. See, the cross was a symbol uh, to the audience of Jesus Christ of torture. It also was a a symbol of public um, annihilation and execution. Now think about that for a moment. When a person was sentenced to die and they were given a cross, they would pick up their own cross most of the time and they would carry their cross to the place where they were going to be hung. Now, whenever this occurred in their life, it wasn't like they said, okay, take this cross, but you don't have to walk down the city streets. We don't let anybody see you. All right? Walk back here in the back so nobody sees you. Exact opposite. When they took up their cross, just like Jesus did, uh, they would walk through the city squares and everyone would see them. Now consider that for a moment. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Take up your cross. What is he saying? If you want to follow me, you better get ready, man. It is a public faith. Now the first step of a new believer is to be baptized. All right? This is baptism up here. We just did it this morning. And whenever a person is baptized, what they're doing is they are proclaiming that they're unashamed of the Lord Jesus. That is the first step. Now, some people who come to faith in Christ, and then we begin to talk to them about discipleship, and we talk to them about being baptized, they're like, no, no, that's not for me. It is if you're for real. Because your faith, listen, is public. Jesus didn't say, hey, take up your cross and go hide somewhere. Take up your cross and follow me. And what's awesome Uh, about this as well is it reminds us that this idea of following Jesus Christ is not some private matter. This is not something you do behind closed doors. This isn't something you do separate from the church. You know, every once in a while we're running to somebody and they're like, you know, me and Jesus got our own thing going on. No, you don't. Your faith is public. Pick up your cross, follow him unashamedly. But also if you're a disciple, you got to be ready for this. Disciples of Jesus are willing to be publicly humiliated. Willing to be publicly humiliated. And that is huge because whenever they would take up their cross and carry it through the uh, city streets, you know what people did? They uh, cursed them. They spit on them. They hollered at them, threw stuff at them. It was a humiliating thing to carry your cross through the city streets. Or streets. I said streets. Y'all all right? That's how you say it when you bad like that. But anyway, so uh, from the streets. But it carried through. So here's the deal. When you choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you choose to do so publicly, unashamedly, even when people humiliate you. You move forward, you still stand for the cross. And here's the deal. When Jesus says, take up your cross, those people aren't like, what's he mean by take up your cross? Here's what Jesus meant. I'm fixing to take up my cross and die. You want to follow me? Get ready to die. And many of them did in the early church. Many of them are today. 
You and I, amazingly, have the freedom to take up our cross and walk around, and we might be humiliated, but nobody's being martyred. And yet some people are still ashamed. Yet some people will shy away from conversations about Jesus because it makes people uncomfortable. Not a disciple, though. A disciple's like, I don't give a rip if it makes you uncomfortable or not. I have given my life to Christ. I am unashamed of him. And you wear proudly, listen, and boldly what Christ has done for you. It's public faith. It's public. So a disciple, what do they do? They willfully surrender to the will of Jesus. They uh, openly follow Jesus. Openly, all right? Some of you just need to do that. You need to openly follow Christ. And then thirdly, a disciple soberly counts the cost of following the Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus tells two stories that we've already read this morning. Uh, one story specifically about a guy who's building a tower. He basically says, if you're going to build a tower, you're going to sit down and calculate or figure out how much it's going to cost you to do that. If you don't, then you're going to look ridiculous if you can't finish. So he says, anybody in their right mind calculates how much the tower is going to cost before they start building. Then he goes straight to another story about a king. He says a king's not going to go to battle until he sits down and actually figures out whether or not he can win the war. Now, here's the, pro here's the uh, process of what Jesus is getting at. Here's what he wants to say to us too. It is, or let me say it like this, just as absurd as it is for a person to build something without figuring out how much it's going to cost, just as, it's a, as absurd as it is to go to battle without figuring out whether or not you can actually win, that's how absurd it is to say you are a disciple if you have no self-sacrifice and surrender in your life. True disciples surrender to the Lord. And I love it because he says it like that in uh, verse 28. He says, sit down and calculate. In verse 31, he says, sit down and consider. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, you need to sit out for a minute, do some figuring, and figure out whether or not this is really something you desire to do. Are y'all listening? Say yes. That's what the Lord's saying today to some of you. Like, you want to follow me? You need to sit down and start doing some math, man. Figure out whether or not you really want to follow Jesus. Well, somebody's like, well, I think I do, but what does it mean? Verse 33, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. So Jesus is magnifying the fact that following him costs you everything. You're giving up your life and sacrificing all to follow the Lord Jesus. And Jesus highlights the reality that you and I as disciples must live a life of self-sacrifice. In following Jesus as his disciples, we must count the cost and be willing to sacrifice everything for his namesake. Verse 34 and 35. Salt's good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? This is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile is thrown out. Who has ears? I like that part. Whoever's got some ears, let him hear. Salt, by the way, is a massive commodity in these particular days. They'd use salt to pack meat for their families to preserve it. But if it wasn't salty, then it was useless. In fact, uh, you just had to throw it out. Jesus is making a correlation here to a person who lacks self-sacrifice and true surrender to him. That person is not a disciple because it is the self-sacrifice and surrender to the Lord that proves your discipleship to him. 
A person who lacks self-sacrifice and lacks surrender to the Lord has no flavor. And in a nutshell, a person who claims to be a disciple but in the end turns from the Lord Jesus would be like salt that has lost its flavor and that salt is useless. Lots of people say they follow Christ. Many people showed up today at Concord and they said, I'm a follower of Jesus. Man, I'm here to hear about Jesus. But um, I don't know how many are disciples of Jesus. There is a difference. Now, y'all still out there say yes? And so I'm I'm studying this in my own um, office, and the Lord's convicting the fire out of me as I go. And I'm thinking, good night. It's amazing, all the stuff that's going down right here in your preacher's heart. And so I, I, what I did is I kind of wrote down this litmus test, all right, this uh, list of questions that I just asked myself uh, after studying this. And, well, I guess you get to listen in to the questions, all right? So here's the questions. Well, I, I know a disciple willfully surrenders to the person of Jesus. So the question is, do, do you intentionally make decisions that display submission to Jesus? Here's, here's another way of, of asking that, and this isn't jotted down. This is just out of my brain right now, so we'll see how this goes. But um, When's the last time you sat down and said, Hey, Lord, what do you want? Lord, what do you desire? And do you find yourself surrendering to another's desire without consulting Jesus? Here's a question. Would someone who knows you best... Say you are more devoted to Jesus Christ than anyone else in your life. Are y'all listening? Someone who knows you best. Would they be like, love of Jesus, off the charts. Disciple, no doubt. Loves the Lord so much, man, everything else looks like he hates it. Then, no, the second little point was the disciple openly follows the plan of Jesus. So my questions were, how, how public is your relationship with Jesus? Uh, do your co-workers, family members, and friends know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? Hey, listen, listen. The question is not, do they know you go to church? The devil goes to church. The question is, do they know you are in line behind Jesus? Can you say like Paul the Apostle said, hey, 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 follow me as I follow Christ. So somebody hung out with you uh, all week long, and they got up and said, let me just testify about him. Let me just testify about her. Man, they've got a love for Christ like I've never seen. It's amazing. Oh, they say, yeah, I mean, they went to church Wednesday night. They came to church Sundays. Yeah, yeah, they did that. And then the last uh, little deal here, this is why the uh, first two services didn't like the message because of all these questions here. I can tell y'all aren't digging it either. But uh, a true disciple just soberly counts the cost of following Jesus. Hey, is there evident self-sacrifice in your life that you can point to as a result of following Christ? It's like, yep, yep, I'm following the Lord, and man, I had to give this up, I had to lay this down, had to get rid of this thing, had to do this, had to do all of this because I'm following Christ. 
Because if you're like, you know what, I can't even think of anything. It's because you probably ain't following the Lord. Now, I'm reading in my devotion now, the book of Judges. And it's pretty amazing, these uh, people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament, uh, especially the book of Judges, they just keep on messing up. Y'all all all right? You ever feel like that, by the way? It's like, I just keep on messing up. Hey, these people did too. And uh, matter of fact, as you study the book of Judges, you'll find that repeatedly the Bible says about them, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a good verse. And why did they do that? Here's the reason. God had called Joshua to lead the people of Israel into the promised land and actually push out all of the pagans and the idolatry of the land. Set a camp for Jesus. But what they did is they actually went in there and they didn't push them all out. They left them. They also left the pagan gods. And the Lord, it's so amazing, man. The Lord says, you need to do all this because if you don't, your heart will become devoted to paganism. You will begin to bow to other gods. So plain. Now, they had done this. They had committed great sin. And now the Bible says, uh, which I think is pretty wild, the angel of the Lord came and spoke these words to the children of Israel. Y'all all right? The angel of the Lord came and spoke to them. Y'all believe your Bible, don't you? All right. Angel of the Lord shows up. I don't have time to go into it, but one day I will. But uh, most often in the Old Testament, when you have a reference to the angel of the Lord, it's actually referencing uh, Jesus pre-incarnate. Pretty wild. So Jesus stands before all these people and uh, spoke the words to them. What was the words? Repent. You're committing idolatry. You're not loving God. You didn't do what you're supposed to do. You need to repent and get right. And the Bible says... At that, point, at that point, the people lifted up their voices. Right? Lifted them up. What, what are they listening? They're screaming. What are they screaming about? They're screaming about their own sin. Wailing over their life. The Bible says, and they wept. They wept. Tears flowing over their sin. And the Bible says, so they named that place Bacham. And there they sacrificed to the Lord. Bacham. Uh, as I looked at that, B-O-C-H-I-M, I was like, what in the world does that word mean? Bacham. Found out it means weepers. Weepers. You know what the deal was? It's pretty wild. Here's what happens. They are so broken over their own sin. They were weeping over their own sin. They had come back to the Lord. And when they got up from that time of weeping, they said, let's just call this place Bacham. Weepers. And here's the deal. Something at least I'm firmly convinced of. Um, most followers of Jesus have no Bacham in their life. They've got no place they can point back to and be like, that's where I repented of my sin. That's where the Lord pointed out some idols in my life and I turned from them and gave my full-hearted devotion to Christ. That's where I lifted up my voice. That's where I wept. It's pretty wild when you think about it like that. You know, we go to uh, these church growth uh, seminars and listen to all this stuff about how, how to lead a church to grow. I've yet to hear a message on how you ought to tell you people to repent and weep over their sin. So I ain't heard that one yet. Y'all listening? So what this text does to me in Luke 14, I read that and I'm like, Lord, I am so not loving you the way I ought to. 
And here's the other thing, and I promise you I'm done. Are y'all listening? Say yes. Um, this is, uh, let's just pretend for a moment, this is a macrocosm of the entire fellowship at Concord, all right? And all of us, we're, you know, we're individuals who make up the body here at Concord. But if uh, we began to say, all right, let's, let's take collectively Concord, if you're part of that, uh, God bless you, but let's take uh, collectively our weight of love for Jesus and put it in that bucket, and let's take our collective weight of love for everything else and put it in this bucket. And uh, the question will be like, uh, which way does the church swing? It's amazing if you think about it like that. Because ultimately, listen, uh, if this is where we're, we're loaded down as a church with loving other things besides Jesus, then we should not expect the Lord to do great things among us. But if it's like, no, no, I went to that church, man. Those people down there, they're crazy. Loving, I've never seen a group of people love the Lord like that church does. Check, check this church out. This is the church God's glory comes down. People come and they're like, something's different about this place. What is up with this? It's like, oh, it's people over there. Love the Lord like no other people I've ever seen. This doesn't happen, all right? This doesn't happen in our fellowship if your life or my life looks like this. So where are you? Where are you? Well, let's pray. Father.